Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first episode of Series 2 of the OSINT Bunker podcast. Uh, this week we're joined by a special guest, uh, Mr. Kyle Glenn, who is not going to say anything, apparently. Sorry, I wasn't sure if you were waiting for me to introduce myself. Or... Yeah, no, yeah, sorry. Go for it, mate. Go for it. <laughs> uh, so, um, as I said, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the founders of the Conflict News Twitter account. Um, as I've been doing interesting notes now for the last, Jesus, seven, eight years. So, yeah, thanks for having me. And obviously, yeah, Kyle, Kyle's well, definitely. Kyle's definitely one of the uh, OGs in the space. It, it, to, to use a to use a certain term, um, <laughs> definitely has um, the most experience of getting yelled at by random people on Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> getting yelled at, being accused of being a shill for yeah, that's, any that's country you can think of. Yeah, so still waiting for my checks. Still waiting for my checks from everyone. Yeah, the Indians are going to pay me. The Pakistanis <laughs> are going to pay us. You know, so, someday someone's going to cut us a check eventually. <laughs> Yeah, and so we we start the season off with uh, Kyle. He's going to be the first of uh, several guests we have on the podcast uh, from the open sources intelligence community um, as we sort of discuss the the ongoing topics in the uh, in the world and 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 everything. So, introductions done. What say we talk about Afghanistan? I'm just going to take a second to bang my head against the table, and then we can get back to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> We, I, I know we, we spent the last podcast sort of talking about the situation as a whole and sort of, you know, how it coalesced and came together and what events led to, you know, the collapse of Afghanistan. The last two weeks haven't really changed that um, assessment that much. You know, the leaked intel reports we've seen, um, the diplomatic cables, pretty much everything is sort of coalesced around this one narrative that you know the u.s pulled out left a number of countries in the dark about sort of the ramifications of the pullout um other countries did drop the ball um in the intelligence department not sort of not preparing as much um for some eventualities um but there there still were a, a number of in people in the intelligence field sort of screaming about what could happen um and of course, the the Afghan army collapse was, you know, not not expected per se, but but definitely was well within the realm of possibilities. Um, the U.S. airlift um, was a success. I I will say that the U.S. airlift to get people out of Afghanistan, when you look at the raw numbers, over a hundred thousand people evacuated, um, it, it was a success. On the other hand, um, a number of people were not able to leave the country, including SIV applicants, some American citizens, um, and a lot of Afghans who would be at risk. Um, on the side of the SIV applicants, there was definitely a lot of sandbagging coming from the State Department, and, and I've talked to people about this, um, where either... SIV applicants would try to be processed and then either security screeners of the State Department would, you know, spend 
months trying to get extra information for them and just ruthlessly grill them, which if you look at the numbers just resulted in, you know, only a few thousand applicants being accepted over the last few years. And that just absolutely hampered the U.S.'s ability to actually get people out. Um, and so that was more on the State Department end. On the on the military end of things, of course, we we all know um, how heroically they they executed the the pullout in the in the situation they were put in. Um, and unfortunately, they they weren't able to properly manage all the risks. And I I had said last um last episode I I don't know how they could properly manage all the risks. And of course, we all um know how that ended um i just you know what what are your guys's thoughts on on that whole situation um i was going to go back to what you said about it about it not being so much um expected um i was saying this earlier i was reading through some um reports from 2015 2016 about um you know like really the reconstruction in afghanistan and it was a quote which really stood out to me um from this is, this is from march 2014 um and it's from general joseph dunford and it was in the senate armed forces senate armed services committee um and he said afghan security forces will begin to deteriorate upon coalition withdrawal the only debate is the pace of the deterioration or deterioration so they they knew it was going to happen in 2014 that as soon as like the US or like the, the coalition pulled out that the Afghan armed forces were just going to immediately start collapsing um and I even said here that you know the special forces were that uh, became the best of the best but conventional forces suffered from high attrition and serious deficits in training equipment and readiness so you know 7 years ago 6 7 years ago they were fully aware of what was going to happen um if they suddenly pulled out um and I think that just makes it even more frustrating that they did it in the way they did it, to be honest. Yeah, I think the main debate was on the speed of the collapse, but there there were definitely uh, people saying that, you know, the collapse could happen very, very quickly um, and sort of leave the U.S. And, and other NATO allies also caught, you know, sort of caught out in, in the entire situation and, and not being able to evacuate people from outside of Kabul as well. Which, which was a huge, huge issue even at the start of the evacuation was people who were outside of the city couldn't really get in and couldn't get from other parts of Afghanistan. And that, that was definitely one of the, the many issues, of course, with the evacuation. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there, was, there was a pretty good idea of what would happen and, you know, warnings were ignored. But that, that, that happens all the time, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um... Sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. I was going to say that someone, someone else. <laughs> <laughs> someone jump in, save them. Um, it, it, it just, I, I will say, sort of moving forward with that, um, the the security risks, which I, I know, you know, people said that um, that uh, uh, Bagram should have been retaken um, at the point that the U.S. is sort of. Um, committed to with the withdrawal earlier in the summer um with seriously retrograding out um equipment and troops very quickly once it got to that sort of you know 90 plus percent withdrawal point reintroducing troops was a really hard situation and retaking any assets would have been incredibly hard as well um I think the decision or the error in the decision making more lies in you know abandoning the assets in the first place um 
Bagram, a, a lot of people agree, would have been easier to control um, than Kabul. Uh, it wouldn't have been more susceptible to having massive crowds and um, and sort of the that poor crowd control situation. It would have been sort of separated from a lot of the issues of the Taliban as well. So, I mean, sort of looking back, there was definitely, as we said in the last podcast episode, um, this need to be out as quickly as possible without sort of understanding potential tactical ramifications, which is... <laughs> When, you know, when people from state are attempting to lead uh, the the military on, you know, uh, tactical decisions, stuff doesn't really end well. And we, we sort of saw that proven with, with this situation. And I think we should probably pivot to the main um, topic of what we were going to hit on this podcast, which was, you know, we, we know how the evacuation went. We know the events leading up to the evacuation. We sort of wanted to talk about both the media environment around the um, entire situation and how, you know, there's been a lot of disinformation. There's been a lot of people sort of grandstanding without concerning the actual facts on the ground and without concerning, you know, the the people on the ground as well. Mm. Um, and, and it's been a lot of people trying to score political wins. And um, that's definitely reduced the quality, I think, of a lot of the information getting out um, because a lot of people are trying to use or cherry pick selectively um, things that make their narrative look good, um, which which sort of misses the point. I think we were going to hit on first um, uh, captured Taliban or captured equipment given to the Afghan army. I, I know people have been passing around inflated figures and and i know kyle has done a lot of research on that over the past <laughs> week trying to trying to figure out uh what the actual numbers are yeah so like the infographic i'm sure everyone's seen going around said i can't remember what the total monetary value was but i think it was eight or nine billion i think was that is that right does that sound right to you guys that they said uh, that like, the Taliban had captured was even more than that. Was it 80 billion, maybe? Yeah, it was, or, I thought it was, I thought it was like 83, 83 billion or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm missing a zero off there. But yeah, it was it was a ridiculous amount of money. Um, and I found like the infographic here where they said that, um, I mean, it just says military hardware left in Afghanistan, says 3,000 Humvees, uh, 32 MI-17s, 3 C-130s, 43 MD-530s, 33 Blackhawks, and, and so on. And it was just... It doesn't at all match up with what reality is. Like you know, the Taliban absolutely don't have 33 Blackhawks. They don't have um, 43 MD 530 or 530s or, or 32 MI17s. It's just not at all realistic. Um, I think I've seen. I think maybe there's been evidence of them operating five or six helicopters total. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen more than that. Um, uh, it was one MI17, a couple of Blackhawks, and. I saw pictures of MD 530s, but they were not operational. So, yeah. no, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I, it's just it doesn't fit with reality. And even you know the claim here of three thousand Humvees. Um, I was looking through um, Oryx's blog, which again is a fantastic collection of uh, I don't know how he's managed it, but he's got um, what I can't remember the date was. So from June two thousand twenty one until fourteenth August twenty one, he's documented like the entire Afghan military losses. So, I mean, that includes um, 12 tanks, 12 captured tanks, 7 T-54s and 5 T-62s. Um, in terms of helicopters, he's got 13 MI-17s, 
of which five, six, maybe even more, he's got listed as destroyed. Um, and seven Blackhawks, of which three or four are destroyed. So, I mean, that's all he's got. So, total, he's got 13, 20, 23 helicopters total captured. Um, maybe eight or nine not fully destroyed. However, however many of those are operational is for debate, I suppose. Mm. Um, I, I guess, like, the main thing they had was um, what he's got listed as trucks, vehicles, and jeeps. Um, of which he's got uh, only 106 destroyed, but 1,980 captured, uh, and that includes Humvees, Ford Rangers, um, and just various trucks. So I mean, it's it's definitely not great in terms of the equipment they've captured, um, but it's definitely not as um, horrific as. Uh, as you know, as, as the media are trying to make out, then you know it's definitely not like a massive, you know, eighty yeah. billion loss. Um, and like I said a lot of you know a lot of the soldiers who you, who you know were kind of left high and dry from you know their, their um, superiors, you know, fled into Iran with equipment. They fled into Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, um, which I, again I haven't managed to find any solid numbers on that. Um, Reuters have said. Um, uh, they they received 22 military planes and 24 helicopters. Um, they also shot one down, so I don't know if that makes I don't know if that's part of the 22 or if that's 23. Um, they did but... shoot down an A29, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one or also no, it, it wasn't a shoot down. It was a, it was a it was a midair collision um, between a MiG-29 and an A29. But um, are they separate events? What it was, I, believe I, thought... it, 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 I believe the reporting ended up coalescing around the fact that it was a single event. Oh, okay. Um, I thought it was with a, it was a midair collision. Yeah, um, I mean the main thing is basically every almost every single aircraft, uh, both rotary wing assets and fixed wing aircraft that could fly, get off the ground, and get out of Afghanistan, got out of Afghanistan. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. A few aircraft in flyable condition were left. That was that's what we're seeing flying around now, and and very much uh, being broadcast through Taliban media and through Taliban propaganda. They're very happy about the, you know, three or four working helicopters they've been able to start flying right now. Um, I mean, we saw on the ground in um, in Terbez in, in Uzbekistan, we saw 11 out of the 18 um, Pilatus PC-12s that the Afghan Air Force had, uh, six out of the 19 A2, A29 Super Tucanos, and um, four or five potentially of their Cessna 208s. Um, the thing was, the, the Afghan army relied massively on outside contractor help for um, uh, both repair and supplies, and the, the Taliban has none of that now. Um, when that started to be withdrawn from the Afghan Air Force, um, their ability to actually conduct operations and repair their aircraft effectively went away, um, which again helped contribute to the collapse. We talked about that last week. Um, so you just sort of have this situation where, yeah, sure, the Taliban captured a lot of assets, even, you know, the ground vehicles. I mean, Humvees are not reliable at all. They're going to be, even if they have the technicians to repair them, they're going to be cannibalizing spare parts and... Mm -hmm that number of usable vehicles is just going to slide down. Um, and so, you know, it, they don't really have the situation where they have the exterior support um, to keep up maintenance on these vehicles and, and actually um, 
keep them operational. So, you know, even over the next few years, we're going to see the usable number of vehicles they've captured plummet, basically. And in terms of numbers, while it could be argued that at the moment they have enough equipment for a small army, realistically, the amount of it that is actually usable, as you've said, is so small that we're not going to see it as a huge threat realistically um they'll probably use them for a few months i would imagine largely for sort of enforcing their rule in kabul and some of the other cities but beyond that as you say without the maintenance support um which they could still get from china because uh, china has mm-hmm. been very clearly uh sort of lining itself up to assist the taliban government um but unless they get that kind of support from China, which is going to be expensive, the chances are, give it six months, a year, 99% of the equipment that they have captured is going to be unusable. Yeah. And the thing is, like, what do they actually need the equipment for? I mean, they the whole thing about the Taliban was, with their takeover of Afghanistan, it was as much of a political victory that enabled their military victory. Um you know, they, they got regional governors to surrender without shots fired. Um, it was more the, the this idea that the Taliban were bound to win that really was the, the catalyst that resulted in the, the fall of Afghanistan. Um, so, I mean, you're going to see the, the Taliban fighting force is incredibly irregular. A very large portion of them are going to go home over the fall for or basically starting now for um, harvest and then over the winter everyone goes home because no one fights in Afghanistan in the winter um, so you're, you're gonna see this situation where you know they'll have effectively small forces holding the cities but they aren't really gonna have u- uses for these these large numbers of vehicles that they've captured so you know they're most likely going to fall into disrepair which a lot of them already are and and you're just gonna see this degradation of the equipment they've captured and and we all sort of knew that was going to happen i mean it happened when they got into power in the first place back in the 90s um so sort of trying to create this narrative of oh god the taliban has this massive advanced army now is it's not fear-mongering but there's there's certainly an element of um sensationalism i guess Mm -hmm. No, definitely, and I mean, like I said, they, they, they're not going to have any use for it, because for all the intents and purposes, except for, you know, like the small resistance in the Panjshir Valley, um, you know, the country's mostly at peace at the moment, there's no need for a massive kind of military force, um, and, and even, you know, even in that valley, I mean, we've all seen the photos going around Twitter of just, like, the roads in and out of it, it's completely implausible that you'd even need like you know you can't even get like a large convoy through those you know through those mountain passes without them just getting kind of bunged up so they're not even much use in the fight in there which is it seems to be mostly just kind of everyone taking pop shots at each other from the top of hills and stuff um so they're just gonna just kind of sit around because the taliban you know the i guess massive arsenal of vehicles is gonna be the only people that's going to be a threat to is, is again, people of Afghanistan. There's like, you know, they're not going to be a threat to any of Afghanistan's neighbors or anything like that, which, you know, is, is not, it's not going to be an issue. Um, and what you were saying about the, um, the the maintenance, again, I was reading on the, uh, you know, the, some reports from the Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction uh, said that the, the target for the Afghan National Army to maintain their own equipment was 80%, so maintain 80% of their own equipment 
Um, and again, as of early this year, they were maintaining under 20% of it. Um, with uh, the Afghan National Police, police only maintaining 12% of their own equipment. Um, so, you know, with the amount of, you know, like uh, soldiers that fled the country, you know, either to, to the neighbours or kind of, you know, in the um, in the Kabul airlift, there's, there's going to be no one in the country at the moment that's going to be capable of maintaining most of the vehicles um, that have been captured. So they're just going to kind of sit in depots around military bases and then just kind of waste away, I think, for the most part. A lot will be scrapped, probably, for, you know, scrap metal and that stuff. Um, but again, it's it's this whole idea of the, the Taliban never had this sort of large standing army. Um, yeah. Uh, unlike the NA and unlike the ANP, there there was just no need for it. I mean, these were seasonal fighters, basically. I mean, they have small, you know, very small forces that are, are you know, professionally trained in, in camps and um, and actually sort of serve full time. But it, most of their fighters are, are this seasonal sort of um, irregular force, which, again, has served them well over the past 20 years. Um but but I, we're just we're we're going to see most of this equipment rot away, um, just like Kyle said. Yeah, and because again, like the the images of the um, you know, like the Badri three one three battalion, you know, in all their fancy equipment, it looks good on TV. But again, they you know, I, I don't even I don't know what the total size of of you know their special forces are, but they're a tiny percentage of you know the entire Taliban force. Yeah, we're talking and... about hundreds of people here at at most. Yeah, um... and and I can't remember which. Was it a, a British politician or an American politician, or just referred to the Muslim as like country boys or something like that, or some <laughs> some ridiculous comparison? They just yeah, oh, it like... was the um uh the head of the British Armed Forces. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah they uh, just said you know the, the... Carter. Yeah, they said you know they're just good old country boys or something like that, something along those lines. Which I mean, you know that, I... that assessment it, it... it's not it wrong. Was as say. incredibly <laughs> badly, but it's yeah. true. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think this sort of romanticism applied to it, whereas, like, you know, that that's yeah, the Taliban are not romantic, but they definitely are, you know, this irregular force of of you know, good old country boys. And uh, yeah, exactly. you mentioned um, the, the Panjir Valley, um, and I don't know if you boys have actually seen the uh, the sort of the news that's coming this evening. Um, there are indications that after a day of heavy fighting there today, uh, the valley may actually have fallen to the Taliban. Um, yeah, I did see something. It, it's unclear. The Taliban denied that it fell. It, yeah. It's it's honestly that's that's the one main loss we had from Afghanistan is pretty much all of the reliable reporters we've seen are no longer in the country, hmm. uh, which effectively leaves us with this this amalgamation of uh, Taliban media which is effectively propaganda um and just this this fairly large you know mess of information that comes out which which you know requires this sort of correlation and and um you know a, a attempting to get to the bottom of rumors effectively yeah. which is you know what what we're good at or not good at per se but what we try to do um <laughs> But but it's certainly um, the the media environment in Afghanistan has certainly uh, been reduced in quality, mm -hmm. and it is entirely possible, of course, that the valley may well have fallen today. 
Um, like you say, we, we haven't managed to get that verified yet, but it, it's worth mentioning that uh, yesterday the, the Pentagon press secretary was asked um, if the DOD would be prepared to support the resistance fighters there with airstrikes against the Taliban. And the response was, quote, the US military mission in Afghanistan is over, end quote. Which, yeah, I'm I mean, pretty, again, we kind of pretty saw final, isn't it? Yeah, we yeah. Kind of saw that response coming. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that that was really a surprise to any of us. It, it, it's a disappointing reality, but um, yeah. I think we've had sort of more of a positive response from from the UK, really, um, with indications from uh, the, the Ministry of Defence that there was a chance that the UK would be prepared to carry out airstrikes in Afghanistan. Um as part of its fight, continuing fight in Syria and Iraq against ISIL and, and, and other groups. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it, I think it's fair to say there is no, not going to be anywhere near the level of support um, that the US could have provided. Um, and as I said in, in, in an article I wrote for the UK Defence Journal yesterday, the chances are that it's not going to matter now how much support we give the resistance in Afghanistan. Um, they are going to lose that fight, unfortunately, because of the position that they've been left in. Yeah, I mean, also like the literal geographic position of of the valley as well. Is it's yeah. it, it's you know it, it's not on like the border of any countries like Tajikistan or Uzbekistan. Who you know again, I think. Um, I think in the early days, I think there were some rumours that Uzbekistan were trying to get some weapons to them. But, I mean, I'm just looking on a map now, and I mean, like, as the crow flies, it's, it's you know, a good 200 kilometres, more than 200 kilometres from any kind of usable border. Um, and to kind of try and get any kind of weapons through 200 kilometres of, you know, Taliban-controlled country is going to be a, a task in itself. Um, it's completely implausible, I know, but I was just thinking, like, the only thing that might possibly work was if they could try to maybe set up like a, a turkey style safe zone on one of the borders in the north you know maybe like a 10 kilometer deep kind of strip or something like that but again I know that's, that's never going to happen um yeah but... a lot of a lot of countries um bordering it sorry correction two countries in specific that border afghanistan um uh uh Turkmenistan, or I believe it's it's actually Turkmenistan hasn't said anything publicly yet, but the two other countries that that at least have some public facing public relations, um, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, who who border Afghanistan to the north, um, uh, and both have significant border crossings into Afghanistan, have expressed uh, concern. I think um, would be the proper term at um, the you know obvious. Uh, situation happening in afghanistan right now and um both are concerned of course about extremism um being imported to the north they've both tajikistan and uzbekistan have had problems with um extremist attacks in the past um that they at least say have have originated from afghanistan um and uh uzbekistan actually has a fairly major city sitting on the border with afghanistan as well so there's this whole situation where uh, these central asian countries have uh, looked at this destabilization to the south and you know it's sitting right on their border it's something that they're forced to deal with um so we're we may possibly see them take action in the near future 
Um, it's not like the Taliban is a, um, a, a very advanced enemy. Um, so they, they may take limited action against the Taliban in order to secure um, their own border areas. Um, and it, it, it most likely any action would be taken by Uzbekistan just because of the nature of how um, how their border works and, and how populated their border area is. Um, but it's again, it's it's one of those destabilizing factors that I don't think members or uh, that people correction that people who wanted to leave Afghanistan didn't really think of about how key Afghanistan is in the area and how a destabilized Afghanistan results in more regional issues. But hey, forever war, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, yeah, it's just a awful situation all around, really. Listen, there's no good answers like, to any of the issues going on in the country at the moment. Um, you know, especially the issue of I, I don't know how many um, were confirmed to have been left behind after like the airlift ended, but I know there was a significant amount. Like, were there any UK um, US? nationals like u.s passport holders i think i'm sure there was a few wasn't there yeah there's still stranded in country um and i know and i i've personally spoken to at least two or three british passport holders who are still in country and are trying to get out so it's you know a really difficult situation for everyone um especially as you know nick Kabul for all intents and purposes is shut off from the rest of the country at the moment I, you know, yeah. I, I can't imagine it's very easy to get in or out of the city at the moment um, and even if they could get out of the city um, I know Pakistan were shutting their border crossings um, in the last couple of days there was um, a couple of Afghan civilians were killed uh, one of the major border, border crossings wasn't there um, and I think uh, I think like a Pakistani um, border guard was killed as well by gunfire so it's really tricky situation as well for you know the neighbors of afghanistan in terms of you know trying to just not stem the flow but just trying to manage the flow of refugees out of the country yeah because any country that sort of opens their borders back up to afghanistan is going to face this massive refugee flow because i i mean you know afghanistan people will try to leave people will continue to try to leave and of course, those neighboring countries will have to control that flow. The main countries that will have to deal with that, of course, will probably end up being Pakistan and then Tajikistan and Uzbekistan because those are the easiest countries to actually then move on out of that area. Um, I, I mean, again, regional destabilization. Uh, one thing we are seeing is uh, Qatar actually looks like they're trying to um, help the Taliban uh, reopen uh, uh, Kabul International Airport. Um, that seems like something they're at least trying to sort of put together at this point. Um, they they so landed... It, as I say, wasn't it like a domestic, well, not domestic, but wasn't like uh, international flights meant to resume today? Was it tomorrow or one of them? Uh, I've, I've seen nothing that reflects that yet, um, but they they Qatar has landed technical teams. Um, in, in Afghanistan in order to facilitate a reopening of the airport. So and I know we may Turkey see that is, in the near uh, future. Yeah, I know Turkey was looking at similar um, aid to getting Kabul airport up and running. I don't know if they've actually been able to assist with that or if they were turned away by the Taliban. 
there's a lot of rumors around Turkey and the Taliban, wasn't they saying that they were going to kind of turn the airport into a kind of again like a kind of safe zone, um, and like Turkey were going to take control of the airport. And, but I think they, they were definitely turned away by the Taliban on that option. I, I think um, the security risks ended up being um, uh, too much for them to really uh, not handle per se, but stomach maybe. I, I think that might be the right term for it. it. It's just the the security situation changed so quickly um with with the end uh, uh and the pullout as a whole and that that scared a lot of the the players who wanted to actually assist in you know managing the airport and reopening things um so you know into the future we'll see you know whether or not turkey wants to rejoin that but for right now Qatar seems to be um positioning themselves as the main uh uh how do I put the conduit to the West um, where, you know, they've, they've always served as the sort of, you know, uh, not middleman per se, but more of a neutral power in the region um, where they're friendly sort of with everyone, except for of course, Saudi Arabia, but that's more because Saudi Arabia doesn't like them. Um, yeah. But you know, they, they were of course the facilitators for um, the negotiations between the Taliban and the U S so we'll most likely see them continue to be a, a conduit to the West and, and this sort of vital connection um, if the Taliban are to either A, get foreign currency or, um, or or aid in any way, shape, or form. I mean, nearly half of Afghanistan's economy last year was foreign aid. Um, Afghanistan does not produce a lot of stuff domestically, and um, their their imports are a very large portion of their economy. Uh, their economy is sort of uh, screwed. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> screwed right yeah. now. Um, Especially with the Taliban claiming that they're going to stop um, heroin production, which we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's not even that. It's just no one has the ability um, to get some sort of stable uh, uh, work going right now. They're, they're, the stability in countries is very low and um the the previous monetary aid that the country has been running in has been cut off so it, it's just again this this jet instability is the enemy of progress um especially oh, in the economic side of things so uh, we'll we'll see that evolve into the future and and um i don't think without significant international aid afghanistan will be able to do well and, well, and... that's where China's going to come in, isn't it? Because, you know, there's the, the trillion dollars or whatever it is worth of minerals in Afghanistan. Obviously, the U.S. weren't able to get their hands on. And obviously, why China is so interested at the moment, you know, they're not they're not suddenly budding up with the Taliban, you know, out of the goodness of their heart. You know, they want to get their hands on those minerals. So Yeah, China China's more interested in sort of the economic colonialism of it. They're not really yeah. interested <laughs> in improving. They're not really imp interested in improving the livelihoods of, you know, people. I mean, what western countries were doing were just dumping money into Afghanistan. Um China actually wants to get something out of it. Um so they'll they'll do what's ever required in order to secure whatever mines they set up or or whatever transportation links they set up throughout Afghanistan. But apart from that, I, I, I really don't see uh, uh, China doing doing much to support the people of Afghanistan. Um, they, they may make token um, moves and, and PR stuff, but but I, I, I don't really. No, definitely. And until um, I read as well that the Taliban were banning kind of, um, again, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here. Is it Oi? Oh, God. The, uh, the ethnic group in China that's being genocided. I, I can't pronounce it. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Uh, Yugir? 
Yeah, I've never said that out loud. Uyghur. Yeah, I've never said that out loud before, and I've never realized how um, I'm, I'm <laughs> how positive I'm butchering like, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm sure I read that, you know, with, with China kind of buddying up to the Taliban, I'm sure I read that the Taliban had then banned um, anyone from that particular ethnic group from participating in, um, well, or joining their ranks in country, which is, again, very interesting. Oh, that's like fairly, you know, light for them. That's that's not even the worst stuff they've, oh, they've no, done. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> but, I mean, but it's, um, I mean, it's interesting in terms of, you know, it's obviously one of the concessions they've made in terms of getting Chinese assistance so that they, you know, like banning this group from operating in the country. Um, obviously, there's nowhere near any of the worst things they've done, but it's definitely, um, you know, like a definitely like a signal of like the cooperation between China and the Taliban, or the early cooperation, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't know, the Taliban seems to have not sacrificed a lot of their views over the past few years, but um, they're trying to sort of put forward this new, what is it? Um, the inclusive Taliban that, that, mm -hmm. that's what, um, that's, that's what the, uh, the, the, the chief of the um, British army said. Um, but, but it, it's this, it's this PR view of, of the Taliban trying to make them look um, more Western friendly in order to, um, again, secure that international funding, which they need. Um and sort of to legitimize their rule, because we all know what happened um, between 1996 and 2001 when their rule really wasn't legitimate. Um, I mean, they did, they started to receive help from the U.S. to actually quash um, uh, opium production. But apart from that, they, they really were pariahs in the international scene. Um, mm -hmm. And whether or not people are forced to turn to opium production again because of, you know, a decreasing or declining economic situation and, you know, whether or not the Afghan currency collapses. And they're just a bunch of these factors that really puts a lot of strain on the people of Afghanistan. And, you know, that's the worst thing we can see because, you know, talk about the Taliban as much as you want. The, the real people suffering here are the people of Afghanistan. And, Absolutely. Yeah, I... I you know, it may not breed cycles of extremism, but it's a lot of people who had relative stability who are now thrown into just these series of um, very unstable events that, that I foresee in the near future. No, and on the topic of, you know, cycles of extremism, you, know, you can't say about mentioning the um, the recent drone strike in Kabul that killed, what was it, like six children and three other civilians. Over I mean, the rising capabilities, come on, we're great at it. Yeah, and I, I mean, like, it's, it's just like... You know, you just, you just, you know, leaving, leaving the, you know, leaving the place and then just putting it down on your way out, kind of thing. It's just another kind of kicking the teeth to the people of Afghanistan, isn't it? That you're leaving them in this kind of disaster is the only way I can think of, and then you're just, you know, still killing civilians on your way out. It's just, I mean, it's embarrassing. I think is the only word. Yeah, I, really... I, I think that that strike was a pretty good example of how much of a farce the claim of you know over the horizon airstrikes are and over the horizon power projection is in in combating terrorism i mean that's yeah. mm -hmm. you know great you might get the right person or you might get the wrong person or you might have you know 1100 percent civilian casualties um yeah and it's just it's this least, rejection yeah. of the reality of the situation and abandoning, you know, long held tenets of 
counterterrorism and intelligence gathering and just all this different stuff that just you know throw it out the window yeah yeah you know they should have learned over 20 years you can't just bomb an insurgency <laughs> you can't just defeat an insurgency just by dropping bombs from thirty thousand feet or whatever it is you know that's not the way it's going to work and you know the claim that they killed i don't know is it like other than that drone strike they said they, they there's a couple of other strikes in which they claimed they killed you know the, the planners of the Kabul airboat bombing but refused to release the names of who they were and it just doesn't really yeah it's doesn't, you know inspire kind of you know um not loyalty that's sort of what i'm thinking of um believe in them i can't think of the word what it means when you believe someone but that's what i mean like it doesn't seem to be like, like you know yeah yeah trustworthy they're not the most trustworthy claims you know like you know they claim you know the the drone strike in kabul they claim they you know at first it was um a what was that, a vbid a car bomb they claimed it was mm. and then they said oh no they seen people put in or, or that there was multiple suicide bombers in the car and then they revised it to they saw them placing explosives in like the trunk, the boot of the car. Um, but you know, there's, there's just no evidence to support these claims. Um, and you know, it wouldn't, you know, it, you know, like they, it's not unheard of for them to release, um, you know, like drone footage of airstrikes and stuff like that, especially in Iraq and yeah. Syria. You know, they they release the footage to back up, you know, their claims. And the fact that they haven't done that in Afghanistan is somewhat telling. Obviously, you know. A lot of civilians die. They don't. They obviously they don't want to provide. You know, they don't want to tell on themselves of that. But yeah. again, it's it's not uh, the most trustworthy of claims. Uh, and the other major issue with the with these over the horizon strike ideas. Is, oh, we've lost someone. Yeah, it's technical. I think his internet's gone. Um, <laughs> the, the the other thing as well with these strikes that we we've got to bear in mind is that now they haven't got boots on the ground to sort of give them real-time uh, data about what they're hitting. They haven't got aircraft flying overhead providing reconnaissance or providing real-time sort of laser designation or whatever. And so <clears throat> all of these over-the-horizon strikes that President Biden keeps emphasising are going to be useful. They're not realistically going to be that useful. They are going to be hitting sort of fixed targets at most. Yeah. Because they're not going to know what else is there otherwise. And they are going to see a, a rise in, in civilian casualties because at the end of the day, without that real-time data, they cannot accurately say, oh, yeah, they're, you know, this, this target area is devoid of, of you know, civilians who are going to get hurt. No, exactly, exactly. And again, that's... that's... And that's been the issue for, you know, 20 years, hasn't it, really? Mm. It's just... You know, like the airstrikes, which lead to civilian casualties, um, and like you know, like you were saying, it, it's just it's a cycle of extremism. You know, I'm not so proud of thinking that you know, if I was living in Afghanistan myself and an airstrike killed a family member of mine or a friend of mine, you you absolutely would. You know, if someone gave you the option opportunity to get revenge on those people, you absolutely would. Mm. And it's like the main issue of um, you know the U.S., especially like again, like these just kind of. I guess the only word I can think of is just almost like petulant airstrikes on the way out, just kind of trying to get the last word in almost. Yeah. Um, like they know they've lost the war, they know the Taliban have won, they look, you know, they've made to be made to look like mugs basically on the world mm -hmm. stage. Um, and they just kind of chuck in a couple of airstrikes on the way out the door, which, 
again, all, all they managed to do is if you know, even if you take them at face value, all they've managed to do is kill maybe two or three middle managers of, of ISIS in Afghanistan yeah. and nine civilians. You know, it's it's not really a um and out of those nine civilians, I think one was like an interpreter. Um, I think two or three of them, actually, you know, worked at the embassy, and six of them were children under the age of ten. You know, it's it's really not. Yeah, it doesn't it's... look good at all. No, exactly. I mean, even it's it's you you really can't argue that any target would be worth that kind of civilian that kind of civilian casualty. You know, even if they managed, you know, even if kind of going back to Obama and when they killed Bin Laden, if they said, "Oh yeah, we got Bin Laden, but we also killed nine children at the same time," yeah. okay, you you definitely would get people that would argue it was justified, but it absolutely wouldn't be. You know, it's still just one guy at the end of the day who you know obviously you know planned and carried out the most one of the most horrific terror attacks in well, in history, basically. But yeah. you, you really have to weigh up the the um the casualties there uh, but uh, it's just the more I think about it the more it winds me up and I'm, <laughs> it annoys me just how poorly the whole thing was kind of planned and yeah. carried out from start and, to finish really and the way that it has been carried out has unfortunately left a vacuum hasn't it because although <laughs> It's allowed the Taliban to sort of charge across Afghanistan and, and take over vast amounts of territory very, very quickly. They haven't been backfilling. So, oh no! As no. much as they've been rushing across the country, it's not just them. You've got, as as, as we've discussed, ISIL um, have sort of flooded a little bit into Afghanistan. Like they were already present in Afghanistan. It's fair to say, um, but it's kind of given them now a bit of a safe haven, hasn't it? Absolutely, it's definitely um, you know a danger of a resurgence for them because obviously they were, I guess, at their peak in Afghanistan in maybe 2014, um, and, and obviously then we had Trump drop in the um, the Moab on him, wasn't it? That was yes. the, uh, the the big event. Was that 2014 as well? Uh, um, I can't remember when that was. It would have been after that, wouldn't it? Um... Oh yeah, of course it would. <laughs> I, I think that would have been about 2017, probably. Yeah, tw- yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously not 2014, but um, yeah, obviously so they've been around since 2014. They probably, um, obviously they started coming to people's attention a little bit more then, maybe around 2016, 2017. Obviously, Trump dropped the bomb on them. Um, but again, the main issue is obviously the Taliban aren't going to have the um, the kind of intelligence network, I suppose, to to counter. Um, ISIS in Afghanistan. They, they, you know, like obviously, the um, the, the the government had uh, obviously they had the assistance from the US. They had the assistance from everyone, basically, in terms of you know, kind of any kind of counterinsurgency against uh, the Taliban and ISIS at the time as well. Um, but obviously, the Taliban aren't going to have. Obviously, I'm not saying obviously they have their own um, you know intelligence units and stuff like that. They've obviously you know got very deep network of I don't even know what you call them but you know they're only um, not spies obviously um, probably more akin to military intelligence I guess um, in country uh, a lot of human intelligence but especially in some of the more like rural areas where uh, 
you know, like ice is going to be kind of thriving now, especially when there's just again, like you said, a, a power vacuum. Um, so that's going to be the real issue. Mm. Uh, and again, it's kind of lucky that Afghanistan is almost um, isolated from any other countries in which there's a large kind of uh, ISIS presence. Um, you I, know, obviously. I, the... I would disagree, actually. I would think the, the main threat, the, the Taliban did a fairly good job in 2018 and 2019 of rooting ISIS out of the territory that they actually held. Um, There's some uh, fairly intense uh, videos and, and um, uh, recountings of, of the conflict that, that happened in, um, in in uh, uh that area and in Rishan Valley, um they they were very effective in, in rooting out that that actual physical um isis presence and then they drove isis back underground i think the main thing that that we risk is this this reemergence of of this this al-qaeda in afghanistan uh, we've seen al-qaeda leadership return to afghanistan already um people that were close to bin laden are now back out in the open in afghanistan um mm-hmm. The, the chatter for foreign networks of, of al-Qaeda-affiliated fighters is um, going wild with, with the prospect of being able to return to Afghanistan. And, and the, 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 the new Taliban government is, is saying things like, you know, Osama bin Laden wasn't responsible for 9-11. So there's, I, I think the main risk is this institutionalized, um, uh, not permission, but this uh, 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 sort of looking the other way. Um, this this implied blessing that the Taliban are giving to to Al Qaeda to operate out of Afghanistan again, and that is something that we definitely risk. Um, uh, and the U.S. obviously now has very very diminished capabilities to to strike targets in Afghanistan. We may see that um, uh, come back to 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 hurt us in the future because unlike isis who is very much concerned with establishing a physical caliphate and more uh attacking regional powers and and regional um uh uh, figures like uh qatar and iran and and syria we al-qaeda is much more focused on um attacking western powers and their presence in the middle east so you know american assets um uh, in Iraq, maybe targeted American assets. Um, uh, in the Gulf states, maybe targeted, and then um, American assets further abroad, maybe targeted as well, and European assets um, too. And that's that's definitely this risk that we face um, because I, not saying that ISIS was less of a threat, but they were certainly less focused on attacking America um, and yeah. more focused on sort of establishing their own presence in the Middle East. And that, that definitely is something that we risk with the reemergence of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. No, definitely. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I don't know if maybe, like, I don't know if the threat to Iraq will be higher, but definitely some of the Gulf states, definitely. Um, because, you know, the, the, the thing with Iraq is it's so... I mean, I, 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 I can't even fit. I mean, ISIS are obviously still active in Iraq, but they're so. I mean, kind of like similar to Afghanistan, they've been driven underground pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and you know, whatever your opinion is on the kind of, um, you know, the kind of the Iranian-backed groups like the PMF or PMF or PMU or whatever, whichever acronym they, you know, you, you choose. Um, they, they they've done a pretty good job as well of kind of you know kind of stomping out any kind of ISIS resistance they come across you know you, you know they regularly post in on you know on Telegram kind of you know the, the 
still getting into the, the occasional fight with them. And Iraq is there. Uh, ISIS is definitely still a threat in Iraq, you know, but mostly they're limited to, as far as I can tell, blowing up power pylons wherever they can find them. That seems to be their, fight, their favorite activity at the moment. Um, but like Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, I think that would definitely be a, a big threat mm. to um, the, the Gulf states, especially with, you know, being on the border of Pakistan, who. I mean, you, you you never know with Pakistan if they're going to be <laughs> allies or or enemy, really. Do you know? Especially with Bin Laden hiding out there for so long. Um, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think definitely the threat to the Gulf states is definitely a lot higher than it would be to kind of you know Iraq or. Um, yeah, I'm just yeah, sorry, just <laughs> just Iraq or Kuwait. Um, yeah, and and I think it's fair to say as well, and we have discussed this before that Afghanistan is now effectively a safe haven for those groups. Um, mm-hmm. We've already seen uh, sort of ISIS-aligned uh, terrorists carrying out attacks. Um, we've obviously had. We woke up this morning to the, the very sad news from New Zealand of a uh, six people stabbed in a terrorist incident down there. Um, we, we we can't say we're surprised by that. Um, New Zealand obviously no. was one of the one of the countries involved in uh, in Afghanistan over the sort of the twenty years that NATO was there. Um, albeit, you know, arguably one of the smaller uh, nations involved. Um, and you know, we, I'm, I'm sure in the coming days we'll, we'll find out the exact reasoning behind the attack and and, and so on and so forth. But is something we are going to see again, you know, sort of resurging. Um, I, I don't doubt we are going to probably have another sort of major summer next year, uh, like we did in 2017 across Europe, where we will see probably dozens of attacks uh, in major cities. Um, how much of that is going to be ISIS and how much of that is going to be Al-Qaeda and other groups, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But obviously, as, as we've discussed, the, the fact that Afghanistan is now effectively a, a free-roaming zone for those groups um, mm-hmm. is it, it's, it's a really, really bad move by the West. Um, Absolutely. And it, it's, it's funny, you were, t- you were talking just now, obviously, about what we're fast approaching now the anniversary of 9-11 and President Biden has literally just announced that he is declassifying the entire 9-11 investigation Um, we'll we'll stick a link to the the article relating to that in in the description uh, for the podcast but um, the the timing is is interesting for that what's your Mm -hmm. thoughts on that guys um, I mean, I, was def- I hadn't heard that. That's definitely interesting, um, and I'm definitely going to be checking that out as soon as that, as soon as that comes out. I'll definitely be giving that a read. Um, I, I, I don't understand the reasoning behind it as such. I mean, obviously, it's the 20th anniversary. Obviously, you know, it's a big, uh, big milestone. Um, but. I'm just. Uh, yeah, I can't really think of. I mean, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it will kind of clamp down on maybe some of the uh, conspiracy theories, but I think that's wishful thinking, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Um, because, you know, 
when would they believe anything that came out of the government? Um, but I think it's definitely going to be an interesting read. Um, it's going to be, again, especially in terms of... I, I don't know what it's going to mention in it. Um, how much... If it's going to kind of point the finger even stronger at Saudi Arabia would be interesting. Mm. Um, but I think that would require... It, it, you know. it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, you know, sort of that does end up being the case, particularly when you bear in mind that US relations with Saudi Arabia have not exactly been strong since uh, Biden became president. Um, no. I think it's fair to say that there's sort of been a bit of a, not a particularly public scuffle between the two, but, um, I mean, we obviously, right at the start of the Biden administration, we had the cancellation of a major defence contract um, which sort of really annoyed the Saudis and, and understandably so um, I don't think diplomatic relations have, have entirely recovered from that since we've, we've not really seen an awful lot happen but No and what, what, wasn't it, didn't Biden threaten to kind of pull the patriots outside your Arabia as well? Was that a thing, or have I made that up? No, that that, that was a thing. Um, I don't know if that's actually happened yet, or uh, what what the situation is with that, because there was quite a lot of talk of that in sort of February March time, and then with everything that's been going on in you know Iran and, and Afghanistan since, it's kind of sort of. I'm sure it's probably still the moot point. Yeah, it's probably still going on, but it's just, it's no longer frontline news and, you know. No, so Iran has definitely slipped out of the uh, the world's attention, hasn't it? Especially, yeah. you know, all those ship attacks and yeah. the mining of the strait and all the rest of it. That that was definitely the, uh... and obviously, I mean, we're assuming Israel hasn't responded to any of those yet, but I think that's probably going to be the next, uh, the next, I mean, next Israel big event. Making noise about Iran's, um, increased capability to conduct attacks and of course they're not quickening pace per se um of getting or acquiring nuclear material for a nuclear weapon but just continuing pace mm-hmm. no, definitely. Well, there was meant to be um in the last couple of days didn't iran say they were open to kind of sitting down and talking but only after they hit the next milestone in terms of the you know the uranium <laughs> enrichment yeah yeah i mean I, say, I'm sure iran would love a taliban style deal um <laughs> well one where they spend months negotiating and then walk away from the table because actually they've already got everything they wanted with the time that they've wasted exactly it's probably what we're yes. talking there it's, it's really like the more you think about like how like interconnected everything is really mm. um Especially with, you know, Afghanistan, and um, I haven't seen so many articles about it recently, because um, I'm not sure how many refugees went to Iran. There's definitely a few soldiers that went into Iran. Um, but there was, in the last few years, there was definitely reports on, you know, like Afghan refugees who fled the country to Iran and were then forced to fight for Iran in Syria mm. um, against you know, either in the, in the kind of north of the country against, like, Turkey and such, or, you know, maybe down south, in which case they're in direct conflict with Israel. Um, but it, it's crazy that, you know, like, you know, a more unstable um, Afghanistan 
could lead to like you know an increase in conflict between Iran and and Israel, especially when you know you've got Afghan refugees fighting for Iran in Syria against Turkish mercenaries and you know U.S. based militias in the east of the country, and it's it's an and obviously Afghanistan's not in the Middle East, but yeah. You know, like the, the events in Afghanistan definitely have a possibility of influencing events in the Middle East, so we say. Um, especially, obviously, you know, with it bordering, bordering Iran, uh, who seem to, again, I, I, I don't think as many refugees have kind of headed for that border as some of the others. I think we've probably, we've probably seen photos more of equipment heading for Iran rather than um, refugees. Yeah, especially when you look at where Kabul is on a map compared to Iran, it's on it's pretty much you know Kabul's over in the kind of central, like well, middle, middle east, I guess, yeah. of of Afghanistan, um, and obviously um, Iran's on you know on the western border. So it is probably, I mean, I'm useless at estimating distance, but it's probably a good 500, 600 kilometers between them, yeah. um, and. Um, I definitely should have had a map of like the provinces of Afghanistan up, but from what I remember, like the the provinces on the kind of Iranian border, they were one of the first, I think, to kind of fall, if I remember correctly. Um, look now, yeah. So you've got Herat. I'm pronouncing this horribly. Probably Herat, Farah, and Nimruz, which again, probably horrendous pronunciation. I do apologize. Yeah. Um, you got three big provinces on the on the western border there, and yeah, from what I remember, they were pretty pretty early on in terms of like the kind of Taliban Blitzkrieg. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if there's a better way of explaining it. Um they 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 were I think they fell pretty early on. Um and then also there was the ones on like the kind of like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan border as well. Yeah. Um so I I think Iran have again not really seen that many refugees. Um I don't know how many Pakistan have seen. Again it's really difficult to kind of because obviously the country is, it's it's almost entirely shut off, you know, from you know any kind of foreign press that were there have gone, any kind of um, kind of local press who yeah. who could get out have got out reasonably. Um, so all all you're kind of left with now is, and I think as we mentioned earlier, is just kind of propagandists almost from from both sides, whether it's from the Taliban or from. Um, you know, like the opposition to the Taliban, so it's really difficult to get a good handle on exactly what's going on. And sometimes the only thing you hear is, again, referring to the um, you know, the the, the refugees who got killed on the Pakistan border. You just hear like maybe one or two people say something, and then you you see like there's like a blurry photo of some corpses or something, and then it's you know, people say it's from this event, but you've got there's literally no way of proving one way or the other, um, and it's just. It was literally like an OSINT nightmare to try and get a good grasp on exactly what is going on in the country without reliable sources and without like a reliable stream of information from, um, you know, like local media. Yeah. And in that regard, it's very much becoming a little bit like Myanmar um, and sort of. Yeah, Jesus. As well. um, both... Cuba as well. Like a protest yeah. in Cuba. Like they. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm, I don't think they just fizzled out one day. I think again they were. They, they, were. They, they cut. They cut the internet, and they were probably put down brutally. You know, like same as in, in um, Myanmar, which, um, as far as I can tell, they're kind of moving more towards a political settlement. I think at the moment it seems to be not so much fighting, but 
definitely in the early days, it was really difficult to kind of get. You know, they were turning the Wi-Fi off every night, pretty much, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, and and, and it's fair to say as well. Obviously, with everything that's been going on in Afghanistan, those, you know, Venezuela, Myanmar, Cuba, those sort of stories, they've not gone away. They're, they're still ongoing. Um, yeah. Maybe the next episode we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully discuss any updates we've got from from those parts of the world a little bit more. Um, I think it's fair to say we've the podcast has been fairly focused on Afghanistan now for probably two months, um, maybe more. Uh, it, it's I think it's fair to say it's been the biggest story of um, the open source intelligence world now uh, for some time. Um, and we're, we're coming towards the end now of, of, of this episode, so we're going to uh, we're, we're going to start wrapping things up here. Um, we just want to uh, we'll, we'll start off, I think, with just some of the other stories from around the world. Um, so this evening, uh, while we're still on the topic of Afghanistan um, and sort of the resurgence of, t- of terrorism in that country. Um, a British citizen has been sentenced to 12 years in prison this evening uh, for supplying £55,000 worth of Bitcoin to ISIS. Jesus. Um, I have to admit well, I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised by the length of that sentence. Um, oh, is it a reasonable is, one? That is pretty impressive for, um, you know, for, 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 for terrorism offences realistically. Um, I think it's fair to say in the UK we've had a bit of a mare with some of the uh, terrorist convictions in recent years, as was shown by one or two of the ones who got out and then went on to carry out attacks. Um, I th- I've sort of tweeted about that, so I won't say much more about that now. But um, yeah, um... did you see um, on the topic of sorry, just like terrible terrorism sentences? Did you see the? Um... The British Nazi yesterday or the day before, who was um, he was found with like bomb making materials or bomb making instructions. Which, to be honest, it did, I didn't read too much into what the instructions were. It was, it's for all I know, it was like the anarchist cookbook, which is you know a, a very common thing that goes around. But apparently, he had like extreme far right ties, and he, yeah, he was. I, I don't know if he was a member of any prescribed groups, but he was sentenced to. Um, what was it? Read Agatha Christie, I believe, was his sentence. The, the judge spared, genuinely, the judge spared him prison and sentenced him to read some Agatha Christie. Um, that is. Let me see. I think I'll just quickly Google it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that it, is I... the extent of the UK justice system, folks. It is a joke. Um, and maybe it wasn't Agatha Christie, but it, it was some. <laughs> author that that was it, it may it, I, I i thought it was a joke when i read it but yeah the um yeah definitely the uk justice system needs a bit of an overhaul in terms of terrorism offenses um the uk ministry of defense today confirmed that a the next set of exercises involving the uk's carrier strike group um will take place uh, after a brief visit to uh, japan um, at the moment, we have confirmation that the uh, British, US, and Dutch uh, vessels will be joined by at least four Japanese warships alongside a Canadian frigate. Um, no doubt there's going to be some spectacular photos coming from those exercises, which uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find on 
uh, Twitter in the coming days. Um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, there was, of course, the news this morning from New Zealand of a uh, ISIL-inspired terrorist attack in which six people were stabbed. Um, credit to the, the local law enforcement, the attack lasted less than 60 seconds uh, before the guy was shot dead by police, um, which is, honestly, that kind of response is just incredible. Um, and thankfully, I think he was the only fatality, as far as I... That, that was the latest I heard on it as well. It was just yeah. uh, six stabbed, but luckily, no, 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 no deaths. Yeah, um, which is obviously uh, very, very good news. Um, I don't know if you've heard anything further regarding the Israeli airstrikes in uh, Syria last night. Um, I haven't seen any kind of information on targets um it looks like the explosion that was heard over kind of northern central israel in the middle of it was a wayward um panzer missile um judging by debris photos that have kind of emerged this afternoon or the, you know this evening um i can't imagine much is going to come of that you know it happened um i, I was i was looking this up earlier i think it was back in april when it was the uh the s200 missile which not sure how close it got to like the nuclear site but close enough to kind of trigger a bit of a panic that yeah. the uh, I can't remember is it Demona nuclear site in Israel um, there was lots of you know panic that maybe there was a rocket attack against Lee um, which again was kind of a wayward um, surface to air missile uh, but it seems this time where that was a uh, again like an S-200 which is I don't know if you've seen a photo of them, but they're ridiculous size missiles. <laughs> you know, they've got booster rockets on them. Um, you know, they they for taken. They were I think they were designed for taking out. You know, um, bombers. And you such. know, yeah, yeah or almost like World War Two era, Cold War era bombers. So yeah, one of those kind of uh, was was the incident in April. This one was a much smaller one, um, but it, it, obviously it is definitely a threat. Um, I don't think it triggered any kind of rocket alert sirens in Israel, like you know, like attacks from Gaza or attacks from Lebanon have. Um, I also don't think it was intercepted. I think maybe it just kind of came down in open ground somewhere in Israel. Yeah. Um, but again, there is obviously a threat from you know Syria's air defense is you know more of a threat to neighboring countries than they are to. You know the missiles or the aircraft they're targeting, especially you know Cyprus was a famous one. Yeah, um, I was going to say I, I seem to remember there was a case of a, a, a rogue surface-to-air missile landing fairly close to uh, RAF units in in uh, Cyprus. Yeah, and um, obviously they shot down a Russian aircraft as well. Not long after that, yeah, um, it was yeah. So it's um, yeah, it's a pattern. They managed to hit everything except Israeli aircraft or Israeli missiles at the moment. Yeah. Um, but obviously that was yeah like last night's airstrike. I haven't seen any kind of confirmed targets of that yet. Yet as I said, it was Western Damascus, um, which could be any kind of anything in the region. Yeah. Um, I, I did hear rumours maybe that it could have been you know targeting air defence sites, um, which seems to be the you know, a favourite of the Israeli Air Force. Mm. You know, it wasn't the airport, so it wasn't targeting any kind of weapon shipment or anything like that. So it was more than likely, um, again, air defence sites. I didn't hear. I, I I don't know if you hear different. I don't think there's even any casualties from it. Um, yeah, I have, but... I've heard indications that it was material damage only. Um, but whether that's just 
Syrian propaganda. <laughs> we, we, we'll have to wait and see satellite imagery. Um, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, other than yeah, no, I, I I haven't got anything further on the Israeli airstrikes on that. Right. Um, South Korea has announced that it will spend a whopping two hundred and seventy-three billion dollars on defence uh, over the next five years, commencing twenty twenty-two. Um, wow with plans including investment in a new long-range 800-plus kilometer uh, precision missile. Um, now, part of the reason for this announcement is that the US uh, sort of agreement with South Korea up until now stated that missiles with that kind of range were pretty much forbidden. Um, <laughs> and I think it's fair to say as well, South Korea is very much sort of dealing with North Korea on its own now, so to speak. Um, it's fair to say they've they've not really been communicating as much with the US recently. They have been actively trying to negotiate with North Korea, um, but they obviously still recognise that there is a threat from North Korea, and so they are preparing these uh, the, these new weapons programs. Um, they are also uh, planning to build more of their new three thousand ton uh, submarines, the, the, the indigenous design that um, has been well. It's been a news a fair amount, I think it's fair to say, for some of the design advances and stuff and the, and the technology that they're using in these new new boats. Um, and the other major announcement from, from that new defence budget is that uh, troops' pay uh, is set to increase significantly um, after there's been a number of complaints in recent years that they have been underpaid and, and, and uh, drastically so. Um, I believe I read somewhere the... The pay for a sergeant is going to increase from something like six hundred thousand of the current uh, of the local currency to near enough a million over the next five years, um, which I don't know how that equates to uh, dollars or, or pounds. Oh, I'm just checking now. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like quite a major jump. Um, so six hundred thousand is. I'm assuming this is is this a weekly or a monthly salary because it's only three hundred and seventy four pounds. Um, yeah, probably a weekly salary. Yeah, uh, and then a million would be one, two, that would be about six hundred and twenty four pounds. Um, so surely it can't be monthly; it must be a weekly salary. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and and what you were saying before about the um the, the missile with like an eight hundred kilometer range, I was just having a quick look at that. Um, from more or less the most northerly point of North Korea to the most southerly point of South Korea is is, is under a thousand kilometers. So it seems, I mean, a missile like that is, it I don't is, want to say maybe overkill, but yeah. But you, you also have to wonder if maybe North Korea is the only possible, um, you know, poss possible threat they're thinking of of a missile with a range like that. Yeah. Obviously, um, I mean, South Korea and Japan even don't have great relations. Not so much that they're going to go to war any day, but they, they definitely aren't friendly as such. Um, and even, you know, you know the, the kind of elephant in the room, you've got China on, you know, off to the east of them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to look at like 800 kilometers. I mean, it's only, you know, from the South Korean coast to the Chinese coast at the shortest point. Um, looking at 
I don't mean 300 kilometers or something like that, uh, 360 kilometers. So, you know, I, I, I can't imagine China is going to be overly thrilled with South Korea developing these kind of long range missiles. Um, and on topic of that as well, the, the other week there was the uh, uh, Japan were placing long range missiles um, just east of Taiwan um, with, with like the range to kind of target China as well, which, you know, is. And I think I think I mentioned maybe to you or maybe to someone the other the other the other week that it you know we've got a real possibility of in the next twelve to eighteen months of having like a and almost a new Cuban missile crisis in the in the South China Sea or East China Sea I guess at this point, um, which is definitely going to be something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And uh, just to wrap up our news stories for the week, a uh, U.S. Navy MH60S. Uh, helicopter operating from the carrier USS Abraham Lincoln off the coast of uh, the US has crashed on the 31st of August. Um, one of the six crew members has been uh, rescued from the sea and search and rescue efforts for the, the other five uh, are still underway. Um, where, where did that crash, sorry? Uh, I believe it was just off the coast of San Diego somewhere, about 50 kilometres Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of late evening, about 50, 60 kilometres off the coast. Um, obviously, you know, that, that that is not too hopeful if they've managed to recover one crew member that they can't find. No. Um, no. And, and it comes, obviously, with the, the, the tragic loss of the 13 US forces in, in Kabul in that blast um, last week as well. Um, so it, it's not it's not been a good week for the for the United States. I think it's fair to say. Um, no, I think that's probably. I mean, obviously including Kabul, that's probably one of the worst weeks for a long, long time. So uh, on that, uh, <laughs> on that. Note, um, it is time to end. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, if you don't already follow Kyle, uh, be sure to go and follow him at Kyle J. Glenn on Twitter and also uh, find the At Conflicts uh, Twitter account that he runs. Um, both of us and uh, Technical are also, of course, members of the uh, Military Aviation Tracking Alliance uh, at Matar OSINT, uh, which you can find on Twitter as well. Um, worth giving all of those accounts a follow, um, particularly if... Uh, things like the Kabul airlift uh, were of interest to you um, and unless you've got anything else to add Kyle uh, no no nothing just thank you for having me I've had a, I've had a good time it's been good to have you um, with that we will call it a quit and we will catch you all again in about two weeks time <laughs>